Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music Bob Dylan started out as a traditional folk troubadour and then he plugged in I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College and I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune we're continuing our series on Bob Dylan by looking at his transition to rock with one of his most notable collaborators, Al Cooper. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And now it's time for some music news. After a long time out of the spotlight, Polystyrene, a legend of the 70s punk rock explosion in England, had returned to the music scene. At the age of 53, she recently gave us a brand new album, Generation Indigo. That's the song that kicks it off, I Love Your Sneakers. And now, only a couple of weeks after people were so thrilled and excited to hear that news of new music from Polystyrene, we have the very sad news that she died after a fight with breast cancer last week. One of the most important women in rock of the 70s. In my book, right up there with Patti Smith. The daughter of an English mother and a Somalian father. She grew up in London, went to school, and was tutored by Brian May, who went on to become the guitarist of Queen. Started out at age 15 as a reggae singer, and then a few years later, wandered into a club 
where the Sex Pistols were playing. She reinvents herself, Marion Elliott, the short, pudgy, frizzy-haired, braces-wearing teenager, becomes polystyrene, leading a band called X-Ray Specs. In 1978, they only put out one album, Germ-Free Adolescence, but it is a perfect album. Links back to the 50s via an incredible saxophone, played on the record by a session musician, but played on stage by another young woman, Laura Logic, and as well to the avant-garde, no-wave jazz scene. Wonderful melodies, brilliant, incisive lyrics. This is a woman who was going to take no guff from anybody. The single that they broke through with, Oh Bondage, Up Yours. Some people say little girls are made to be seen but not heard. I say, Oh Bondage, Up Yours. But Polly always delivered that kind of rhetoric with a a huge smile. She had a lust for life. She had uh, anger, but she had humor. Germ-Free Adolescence is, is full of that spirit. And then, after the record came out, never officially released in the U.S., she disappeared from the scene for years, became a Hare Krishna. She said that the prejudice against her, far more than being a, a woman partially of African descent or being a woman, period, for being religious, worked against her in the music industry. She put out a solo record, but was largely unheard for years until this new generation Indigo record came out. And, you know, at the same time, she had to announce to the world she was fighting cancer. I think that her spirit is indomitable and will never be forgotten. If you haven't heard this woman, we've played in the past, oh, bondage up yours. You need to hear Germ-Free Adolescence. It really is a perfect album. This is a song from it. I Live Off You by Polystyrene and X-Ray Specs on Sound Opinions. I live off you on sound opinions from polystyrene, dead at the age of 53. 
John is in a basement mixing up the medicine. I'm on the pavement thinking about the government. The man in a trench coat, batch out laid off. Says he's got a bad cough, wants to get it paid off. Look out, kid, it's something you did. God knows when, but you're doing it again. You better duck down the alleyway looking for a new friend. The man in a coonskin cap in a pig pen wants $11 bills. You only got 10. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and today we are continuing our exploration of the music of Bob Dylan as he approaches his 70th birthday. Greg, every time I say that, it still blows my mind. Hmm. The man is an American treasure. What we're trying to do in this three-part series is listen with fresh ears. On our first part of this excursion, we looked at Dylan's early years as a folk and protest singer in New York. Today, it's that magical period where he plugs in and goes electric. Yeah, Jim, it was an extraordinary period of time. Between March 1965 and June of 1966, it's pretty hard to imagine any other rock performer of the last half century having a better 15 months (laughs) than Bob Dylan had. He completely changed the game. You know, everybody says he went electric. Well, what does that mean, really? I think there was a number of things happening for Dylan here. First of all, he was broadening his reach as a songwriter. We saw that near the end of the folk period with songs like Mr. Tambourine Man, where he was going for a more poetic, symbolic imagery in his songs. But also as a musician, here's a guy who always had his antenna up, and he was paying close attention to what was going on in England at the time. I mean, the Beatles blew his mind. He didn't see them as a bubblegum pop group the way some of the hardcore folkies did. He saw them as the next wave. This was not a snap judgment on his part. I mean, he had rock and roll in his DNA. He was a huge Little Richard fan growing up in northern Minnesota. Mm -hmm. He saw some of these people play, and now he was ready to embrace the next wave. He was ready to incorporate that symbolic, poetic imagery of his songs and wed it with rock and roll. And so it produced this extraordinary run of albums, bringing it all back home in 1965, which was half electric and Mm -hmm. half acoustic. Later on that year, Highway 61 revisited an all-electric album, and then the capstone, the double album, Blonde on Blonde, in June of 66. Greg, as you said, rock and roll was always part of Dylan's makeup. Now it was coming to the fore, and one of the men by his side in helping him realize this was Al Cooper. Brooklyn-born legend. You talk about a zealot in the rock world. You know, Al starts out as a songwriter, writes This Diamond Ring, goes on to form Blood, Sweat, and Tears, but leaves before they become really popular. In between, he'd been a huge part of the blues revival in America, eventually winds up as an A&R man with a record label in the South that discovers uh, Leonard Skinner. You You name it. We could tell Al Cooper stories endlessly, but we wanted to turn to him because he bridges that period where Dylan is a fixture in the Greenwich Village folk scene, and then he plugs in, and Al is with him on stage and in the studio throughout that period. Yeah, Jim, and he was there with him during one of the most famous or infamous rock concerts in history. The day that Dylan changed rock and roll in a lot of ways, July 25th, 1965, the Newport Folk Festival in Rhode Island. That festival was founded, remember, by Dylan's manager, Albert Grossman. And Dylan had appeared there in folk mode the previous two years to great acclaim. But in 65, as a headliner, he plugged in for the first time. So let's start there. Al, welcome to Sound Opinions. Nice to be back. Now, Al, a lot's been written about that show. You were there. Most of the focus has been on the fact that during the set, Dylan was booed by the crowd. Booing that would follow him and the band throughout his tour 
for the next year. But you tell it differently than a lot of the history books. You say it was overblown that Dylan was booed. He wasn't booed. Yeah. Tell us exactly what happened. Well, the concept of him playing electric was sort of conjured up a couple of days before the show. And I actually had bought tickets and uh, went to the show. I used to go every year. It was like sort of a social thing. It was Facebook for the summer back in those days. <laughs> so there I was, and I was walking around in the afternoon, and I bumped into Albert Grossman, who was Bob's manager at the time. And he said, uh, Bob is looking for you. Why don't you meet us back here tonight? Here are some passes. So I hooked up with Bob, and he said that he wanted to play live, and would I play with him? He wanted to play with a band. And he was going to use uh, Butterfield's band, but he wanted me to play with them. I said, sure, sounds like fun. And we had just finished doing the album. Maybe we were two weeks after we did the album, something like that. Highway 61 Revisited. Yeah. So, you know, it was fresh in my mind and everything. The night before, Saturday night, because we played on a Sunday... We had a rehearsal at one of those, like, millionaire's mansions in Newport. And we stayed up all night. And the Butterfield band was not the right band to do that with. And so we had a lot of trouble. I mean, Bloomfield, you know, was great. And uh, I'm not saying that the rest of them were not great. But it wasn't, some of it wasn't the music that they played. And so we only got three songs rehearsed mm -hmm. that we could play. <laughs> so uh, Bob was headlining the festival, and a lot of college kids came, you know, just to see him and, like, sat through all this, what they thought was bizarre music, <laughs> just to hear Dylan. The average set was between 45 minutes and an hour. And we came out, and... First of all, we played electric, which was bizarre for Newport, although other people had done it. Chambers Brothers and Butterfield are two that come to mind. And then we only played for 15 minutes because we only had three songs rehearsed. <laughs> That's what caused the fracas. Here's the headliner of the festival, and he plays only a quarter as long as everybody else has played. People didn't like that. And as I walked off stage, I caught a conversation between Bob and Peter Yarrow from Peter, Paul, and Mary, who was the MC of the show that night. And he said, uh, where are you going? What are you doing? He said, uh, we only know three songs. 
<laughs> he said, well, well, why don't you play some acoustic songs? He says, I, I, I don't have an acoustic guitar with me. He said, well, take mine. You can't just leave them like that. And he said, uh, okay. And then he went out and played what I thought was the best part of the whole show. Was uh, He played uh, It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. Good choice. Yeah. You must leave now. Take what you need you think will last. But whatever you wish to keep, you'd better grab it fast. He understands your orphan with his gun. Crying like a fire in the sun Look out, the saints are coming through And it's all over now, baby blue It was like a really amazing moment. It was an amazing thing to see. But uh, booing, no booing. Yeah. They were just disappointed, and they wanted him to play longer. It was not a case of, boo, you're going electric and selling out the whole folk movement, which is the mythology going around in most of the history books. Well, I know why that happened. It's because the press was aware of a problem between, you know, the board of governors and Albert Grossman about the fact that Dylan was playing electric. They weren't happy about it, but they didn't say he can't play. And then during Saturday afternoon, the Butterfield Band played a set in the afternoon, and they were introduced by Alan Lomax, and he made reference to the fact that they were playing electric and that was not a good thing. (laughs) And so they started playing, and then just to the left of the stage, Albert Grossman and Alan Lomax had a fist fight during the Butterfield Band set, which the press saw. And so they were aware of a turbulence. And so somebody manufactured the rest of it. The Pete Seeger with the fire axe going to cut the cable. Garbage. Were you surprised the first time the blues came? Yeah, they were. that was at Newport. Well, I, went, I did this very crazy thing. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I didn't really know what was going to happen. But uh, they certainly booed, I'll tell you that. You could hear it all over the place. I don't know who they were, though. I mean, they must be pretty rich to be able to go someplace and boo. <laughs> been talking about Dylan plugging in with our guest, Al Cooper. Next up, we dive into the 1966 double album, Blonde on Blonde. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Once upon a time you dressed so fine Through the bumps of dime in your prime Then you People call, say beware doll You're bound to fall, you thought they were all Kidding you Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and we're continuing to talk about Bob Dylan and his electric period. And we've been joined by Al Cooper, who was at Dylan's side throughout that entire period. In fact, that's uh, Cooper's Hammond organ you're hearing on Dylan's famous 1965 track, Like a Rolling Stone. That's the game changer for a lot of people. Six-minute single released during the summer of 65. The historians tell us it changed everything. The length of the song, the sound, the fact that Dylan had gone electric full on. He had this amazing guitar player at his side as well, Mike Bloomfield out of Chicago, playing those riffs and fills behind him. The music swelling up and then receding. Dylan at his most caustic. Cooper, an untrained virtuoso, if you will, on that Hammond. He really didn't know what he was doing, but Dylan loved the sound he was getting, and they became comrades in arms ever after. Now, Dylan went on the road soon after playing his electric music to sort of mixed receptions. People weren't quite sure what to make of it. It was loud. It was in your face. It was unlike anything Dylan or anyone else from the folk movement had attempted before. Clearly, the ground was shifting beneath everyone's feet, and they weren't quite sure what to make of Bob Dylan at this point. But he was determined to plow ahead. He had found something that had really inspired him not only as a musician, but as a songwriter. Greg, you know, you made the point earlier. It was an extraordinary period of less than a year and a half that gave us bringing it all back home, Highway 61. But the real capper was Blonde on Blonde, one of rock's first double albums. I think the single best album in Dylan's canon. And I would say one of the best albums of all time, period. We're going to focus on this record. It is an extraordinary anniversary, 45 years old. And I think it's a really great way to examine Dylan's artistry. He began recording Blonde on Blonde with his touring band at the time, that Canadian group known as the Hawks, who would eventually become the band. Dylan starts in New York, but the sessions don't go particularly well. Al, Dylan invited you back briefly, and then he abandoned New York altogether. Bob Johnston, the producer, had encouraged him to give Nashville a shot. So Dylan heads down there with you and with Robbie Robertson of the Hawks. You're joined by a bunch of stellar Nashville session cats, harmonica player, guitarist, and bassist Charlie McCoy, guitarist Wayne Moss, guitarist and bassist Joe South, and drummer Kenny Buttry. Now, Al, you've said, and I quote, nobody has ever captured the sound of 3 a.m. better than that album. Nobody, even Sinatra, gets it as good. I imagine that's in large part to the recording process. What clicked in Nashville, Al, that hadn't worked in New York? Well, I, I actually, I only played on one session in New York. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that was used. But it was the only track from New York on Bond on Bond. Sooner or later, one of us must know. Get close to you. 
What was different about Nashville? Everything. <laughs> this is the first time I had gone to another city and played in a recording studio. And I didn't know the session musicians at all, and they didn't know me. And Bob brought uh, Robbie and I to make them feel more comfortable, because he didn't know any of these people. Mm -hmm. The musicians were fantastic. They were roughly our age, and they were really nice people. There was no uptightness or any... It just everybody was really nice, and it was a very comfortable situation. And uh, and I don't think they knew who Bob was. Hmm. And it didn't matter. Then when I heard them play, it was unbelievable. I had never heard people play like that before. The New York session musicians were very different, mostly because they were older. On that album, I was music director. And so I would teach the band the songs before Bob got there, and I had arrangement ideas that I would throw out. So that Bob would come like an hour later, and we would have one or two songs worked out so he didn't have to sit through us learning the songs, which was my idea. Mm -hmm. And as we started doing that, I just couldn't believe the finesse and the beauty with which these guys played. Well, in the morning the late at night I got a poison headache But I feel alright I'm pledging my time Do you Hoping you'll come through too You know, here at your case, as a boy from New York, it couldn't have been much more different uh, for Dylan in Tennessee. And while the session musicians were hip and cool and welcoming, I heard you got run out of a record store on a rail by some, some Tennesseans who wanted to kick your New York butt. Was that hostile outside the studio for Dylan, too? I wonder if that reflected on things. Well, Bob, Bob didn't go out. <laughs> you know, Bob was in his hotel and then at the recording studio, and... Uh, Actually, Bob Johnston had gotten one of Elvis's bodyguards to, like, look after the three of us, myself, Robbie, and, and Bob. A guy named Lamar Fike, <laughs> who was fabulous. And he rescued me, and Robbie also, in a, another situation. So, yeah, that was uh, problematical. Mm -hmm. And my, my hair wasn't even really long yet. <laughs> <laughs> Al, tell us about those hotel sessions. You and Dylan are in a room. You're on piano. He's writing the songs. How did that go? Yeah, there were no cassettes invented yet. So Bob asked me to come to his room, and he would teach me the song, the music of the song. Then I would play it on the piano, and he would write lyrics. But, I mean, continuously mm -hmm. play it for hours. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got to know the songs prior to the sessions. And when I was playing it, I, I had all these arrangement ideas. And so that's why I suggested that to Bob about having me go there an hour or two early and teach the songs to the band before he got there. The arrangements on, that, on those songs are fantastic. 
the versatility of the band. You're, you were talking about people like Charlie McCoy and Joe South, Kenny Buttry, these great players, Wayne Moss. I think you told a story once, Al, if I'm not mistaken, about Charlie McCoy balancing the bass guitar and some brass, I think, simultaneously while he was playing. You'll go your way and I'll go mine, I believe, right? Something like that. No, that is correct. Mm -hmm. Now, I just found out that he denies this now. Yeah. He said that this didn't happen. But it did. It was very memorable. I mean, you can't make something like that up. We were running down uh, You Go Your Way, and Charlie said, "Um, I'd like to play that part that you're playing on the organ on the uh, trumpet with you. I said, that'd be great. But Bob doesn't like to overdub. So unless we get another bass player, I don't know how we could... He says, I can play the bass and the trumpet at the same time. And now Bob was in the conversation. And so Bob and I cracked up. He said, no, really. Hmm. So we started running it down, and the band was playing. And he played with his left hand, you know, the neck of the bass, and thumped down with that. And with his right hand, he played the trumpet at the same time. (laughs) So he's going like, you know, boom, 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 with his left hand. And with his right, he's going, bum, ba, da, ba, da, ba, da, bum, ba, da, bum, 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 like that. So Bob and I were on the floor Mm -hmm. just laughing. (laughs) So Charlie said, I can do it. So Bob said, okay, but just be somewhere where I can't see you. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. listening to Sound Opinions, and we're talking about Dylan's initial electric flourishing and the 1966 Masterpiece double album, Blonde on Blonde. We're here with Al Cooper. Al, there was a lot of levity and a lot of experimentation during these sessions. Dylan has even been described as demanding a Salvation Army band in one of the tunes, which would become one of the album's standouts, Rainy Day Women, numbers 12 and 35. Can you tell us about recording that? So... Kenny Buttry, the drummer, he played a big bass drum that they had in the back. And I played tambourine. I didn't even play an instrument on that. And I sort of was like the commander of the yelling and screaming. (laughs) I just read an interview where Bob Johnson says this year that we were marching around the studio and they recorded that. But of course you can't do that. You have to be in one place so you can be mic'd. Yeah have headphones on and stuff like that so we weren't the only person that could play brass was charlie mccoy but he couldn't play two brass at the same time and the bass so he called up a guy about one o'clock in the morning a trombone player and at 2 a.m in comes wayne clean shaven with a shirt and tie on and he unpacks his trombone And Charlie teaches him, you know, and the two of them play the trombone and the trumpet. Well, they'll stone you when 
so we did a few takes, and I would say by 2.40, we had a take, and we thanked Wayne, and he packed up his trombone and went home. <laughs> I thought that was really, I mean, you know, well, the recording of that song was really bizarre. Well, and the only thing weirder than the final name, Rainy Day Women, number 12 and 35, was the original name. Is this true? Was it actually known in the sessions Dylan was going to call it a long-haired mule and a porcupine ear? Well, what happened is one day when we had done about three-quarters of the songs and uh, Bob Johnson came in and he says, uh, what are the real titles of these songs? And he started reading the titles off. And Bob just was, you know, in those days, he was Bob. He would just, like, make up nonsense titles for, <laughs> the, for the songs, but with a straight face. Oh, we had some great times. We did laugh a lot. That's great. How did these Nashville guys react to the fact that these songs were just epic in length, you know, Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands and Stuck Inside a Mobile? No, 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 nothing like that. Yeah? I mean... Every day I would talk to Bob on the phone before I went to the studio and say, I'm going to do these songs today. And I always tried to get I Want You in because that was my favorite. And I ha- and that, that really was my total arrangement, that song. There was no, nobody improved anything except what I'm going to tell you. So Bob wouldn't let me ever do I Want You. <laughs> because he knew how much I liked it. <laughs> so that, I think that was the last song that we did mm-hmm. <laughs> on the sessions. So we were running it down, and... Uh, and Wayne Morse goes... Like a 16th note phrase. I've never heard anyone in New York play anything like that. So I stopped and I said, and we were just rehearsing. And I said, "Um, can you do that again? So he did it again. I said, can you play that every time we come to that part in the song? Mm -hmm. He said, sure. (laughs) And I I said to myself, this is unbelievable. (laughs) This is unbelievable. I want you, I want you so bad. Bob was obviously having a great old time, but there was an incredible amount of pressure on him to produce great records. You guys probably knew you were under a microscope to a degree because he had exploded with Highway 61 Revisited. What was Well, I, I can already answer yeah. that question. Well, for one thing, there were many days where he would sit at the piano in the studio and work on the lyrics. I don't think any of these songs were really finished before we got to Nashville. Musically, they were, but not lyrically to his satisfaction. So, like, let's say he would get there at noon, and we'd have a couple of songs ready to go. If it was one that he wasn't happy with the lyric, he would sit at the piano and work on the lyric, and we would play ping-pong, have lunch, watch television, just, you know, let him go. And sometimes it would be (laughs) 6 or 7 p.m. before we would start the session because he'd be just sitting there for six hours writing a lyric. The kings of Tyrus with their convict list are waiting in line. 
I remember some Nashville press guy came in like at noon and they threw him out and then he came back about four o'clock and he saw Bob was in the exact same position that he was at 12 at the piano and uh, he came in and he looked he says God what's that guy on and Albert said uh, Columbia Records and Tapes <laughs> That was one of my favorites. Now, you're clearly having fun making this album, and you guys were making history at the same time. It must have been an awe-inspiring time in your life. Well, I did have had one moment where I was working out a part for myself, and I thought to myself, you know, wherever my fingers go, it's going to be forever, hmm. based on what happened with Highway 61. And then I said to myself, lock that up, throw it in some dark corner and go back to whatever you've been doing <laughs> because it seems to work. Mm -hmm. Making Highway 61 was very chaotic and that's why it sounds the way it sounds. Blonde on Blonde was, you know, like a, a finely crafted lawn or something. Mm -hmm. The grounds people paid attention to everything and we just tried to play as good as we could play and uh, when I hear like uh, Memphis Blues again, Joe South is playing guitar on that and I'm playing organ and we're sort of trading licks and it's a very long track. I can't believe that I was 22 years old and played like that on that and I had only been playing the organ for less than a year mm. maybe. It was just inspiring. Treat me kindly And they furnish me with tape But deep inside my heart I know I can't escape Oh, mama Can this really be the end To be stuck inside a mobile With the Memphis Blues again Highway 61 was the record that made me an organ player. But Blonde on Blonde was a, a, just a, a great experience. Speaking to some French girl Who says she knows me well And I would send a message To find out if she's talked But the post office has been stolen And the mailbox is locked We've been talking about Blonde on Blonde and Dylan plugging in with rock legend and raconteur Al Cooper. Al, it's been a pleasure having you on Sound Opinions. It's been a pleasure being had. <laughs> Mona tried to tell me to stay away from the train line. She said that all the railroad men just drink up your blood like wine. We're going to finish up our appreciation of Bob Dylan's electric ears after a quick break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. But we also want to hear from you. Tell us what you think about this period of Dylan's music by calling 888-859-1800. 
You can also email us at interact at soundopinions.org or talk to us on Facebook and Twitter. To be stuck inside at Mobile with the Memphis Blues again. Grandpa died last week and now he's buried in the rocks. But everybody still talks about how badly they are shocked. But me, I expected it to happen. I knew he'd lost control when I speed built a fire on Main Street and shot it full of holes. Oh, mama, can this really be the end? To be stuck inside a mobile with the Memphis blues again. Now the senator came down here showing everyone his gun handing out free tickets to the wedding of his son Nobody feels any pain Tonight as I stand inside the rain Baby's got new clothes But lately I see Her ribbons and her bones Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That's Bob Dylan performing the Blonde on Blonde track Just Like a Woman live on his UK tour in 1966. Greg, we are going to wrap up this second installment of our series on Bob Dylan by talking about our favorite songs from Blonde on Blonde. I said before, I think it's one of the greatest rock albums ever made. I think it's the best album in Dylan's career. You buy that? I do. Okay. I am going to play a song, however, that many people consider one of the slightest on the album. And I'm going to play it for a reason. Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat, to me, is a wonderful look at Dylan's sense of humor. It is wickedly funny. This is Dylan making fun of people addicted to materialism, fashion, and fadism. You know, 66, this is this is the real 60s vibe. It's not about looking great. It's not about what you can own. Leopards, you know, are not yet on the endangered species list, but you have to be really rich to have a leopard skin pillbox hat if it's not artificial material. A lot of people said Jacqueline Kennedy had worn similar hats to this, that he was taking aim at her. Other people say he was obsessed at this point with Edie Sedgwick, soon to become part of the Andy Warhol superstar crowd at the factory. I think in general, this is just about people who are too obsessed with fashion. I always hear this song and think of a Lester Banks quote, fashion is fascism style is originality. I think Dylan is riffing on that. Mm -hmm. But there is some musical history here as well that is worth pointing out. Memphis Minnie had a famous 1941 blues song, Me and My Chauffeur Blues, which is rewritten by Lightning Hopkins as Automobile Blues. Dylan's opening line in Pillbox, well, I see you got your brand new leopard skin pillbox hat, sounds a lot like the Hopkins line, I saw you riding around in your brand new automobile. The lines at the end of the verses, brand new leopard skin pillbox hat coming back again and again, 
Hopkins sings in your brand new fast car, which is also a song about materialism in the original. Dylan is steeped in this kind of musical history, and he can play with these things. I also like the way that every verse ends in Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat. That's a trick throughout Blonde on Blonde. The final thing I'd ask you to listen to as you're hearing this song anew is the guitar. Dylan talked a lot about what he called that thin, wild mercury sound. That's what he wanted. That's what plugging in meant to him. Robbie Robertson gave it to him in spades. However, it is Dylan on electric guitar bringing us into the tune. That first explosive flurry of electric guitar on Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat, that's Bob himself. And it can never be overstated. The man was a ferocious rock guitarist. We tend to forget that, especially over the last decade, which is the subject of our next part of the special, when he's been playing more piano. In any event, one of the great songs on Blonde on Blonde, Bob Dylan's Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat on Sound Opinions. Well, I see you got your brand new Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat. Yes, I see you got your brand new leopard skin pillbox hat. Well, you must tell me, baby, how your head feels under something like that. Under your brand new leopard skin pillbox hat. Well, you look so pretty in it. Honey, can I jump on it sometime? That is Bob Dylan's Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat on Sound Opinions. Greg, what track are you going to play for us? Well, Jim, I'm going to play what I think is a definitive track on the definitive Dylan record, and that's uh, Visions of Johanna from Blonde on Blonde. What an amazing song. I think it encapsulates Dylan's theory about his own songwriting in that his songs are never finished. He never feels like they're fixed in time. This song was recorded numerous times in numerous different ways, and he has since redefined it when he's played it live. He's done it acoustic, he's done it with a full band. You know, those New York sessions we talked about, he produced two pretty good versions of Visions of Johanna in late 65 with the Hawks in New York, and yet still somehow was not satisfied. That sound he heard in his head had still not been realized. When he got to Nashville with Robertson on guitar and Cooper on organ joining those Nashville guys, he got that thin, wild Mercury sound that you were talking about. He heard that sound. And to this day, he still talks about this song with great fondness. You know, he said, if you had to define me, this is maybe the song. What's fascinating about this song is not only 
the great musicianship, those swelling guitar fills by Robbie Robertson, and Al Cooper complementing each verse and chorus with the rising and falling of his organ. And it must be said again, Cooper has played that organ for all of a year and a half at this point. <laughs> right. By now, he's anticipating Dylan's every move, and Kenny Buttry, just with these little taps on the crash cymbal every once in a while, just expertly complementing what's going on in the song. It is a room full of musicians in complete empathy with what is going on in this song, and it is a moving piece of work. You talk about the Rambeau influence, the French symbolist poet influencing what was going on here, the derangement of the senses that Rambeau was going for. It's very much a part of this song. It's all atmosphere. There's something happening here, but we don't know what it is, Jim. It's like people have been trying to figure it out for decades. There's this mix of uh, very concrete images. You know, we've got these lovers entwined, and there's a drug deal going on, and there's a street scene out the window, and a radio playing a country song in this room. And then there's all these surreal dreamlike images. We're not really sure if it's real or not. Who are these characters? Uh, Louise, this little boy lost, Johanna herself. Are they real, or is it just something that's going on in the narrator's mind? We're really not sure. Joanna is obviously the, the central character. She could be a lost love, a muse, a ghost. Is she the devil? There's some who have thought that Johanna is a variation on the Hebrew word Gehenna, or hell. You know, is Dylan talking about a vision of hell here? There's some hints here that he's dropping. We sit here stranded, though we're all doing our best to deny it. Are we in hell and don't know it? That's the kind of questions this song raises. And think about the shift. When you go from something like the times they are a-changing, finger-pointing, the answers are evident. Here, nothing is evident. It's all a play that continually haunts the listener. What is the real meaning of the song? You know, 45 years later, we still haven't quite figured it out. And I think that's the key to its timelessness. A brilliant piece of poetic songwriting by Bob Dylan with a great backing band. Visions of Johanna on Sound Opinions. Ain't it just like the night to play tricks when you're trying to be so quiet? Sit here stranded Though we're all doing our best To deny it And Louise holds a handful of rain Tempting you to defy it Lights flicker from the opposite loft In this room the heat pipes just cough The country music station plays soft But there's nothing, really nothing to turn off Just Louise And her lover So entwined And these visions Of Johanna That conquer my mind Empty lot where the ladies play Blind man's bluff with the keychain And the all-night girls They whisper of escapades out 
watchman Click his flashlight Ask himself if it's him or them That's insane Louise, she's alright She's just near She's delicate And seems like the mere But she just makes it all too concise And too clear That Johanna's not here Of Johanna have not taken my place. That was Visions of Johanna by Bob Dylan, wrapping up the second installment of our three part series celebrating the 70th birthday and the enduring legacy of Bob Dylan. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, next week we have an in studio performance from the indie rockers Titus Andronicus. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Our intern, Nick Myers, he's the Robbie Robertson of our crew. Our producer, Robin Lynn, she is the Charlie McCoy. Our other producer, Jason Saldana, he's our Al Cooper. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, Tori Southside Malatia, he's the Salvation Army Band on Rainy Day Women. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. You never call my name. New messages. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Orrin calling from Chicago. And I just listened to the Butch Vig show, and it was great to hear all those tunes again. You know, one thing I really noticed when I was listening to him was production quality. No matter how much wall of noise guitars or whatever was going on, pounding drums, you could always hear every instrument really clearly and everything that was going on. And it's a testament to his production talent. The only thing I've heard lately that sounds anything like that is was Super Chunk's record last year, which was another one of a bunch of guys from the same vintage who really know how to work a studio. Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Kenny from Palm Desert, California. I wanted to thank you, Greg, for playing the Bob Dylan track at the end of your Bob Dylan show, A Moonshiner. I'd never heard that song before, and as I usually do, I was riding my bike when I was listening to it, and just broke into tears. It was such a beautiful song, and I really related to the struggles with alcohol addiction, and as a person who's been in recovery for a little while, it just it was one of those great moments where I heard my own thoughts being played by a musician and an artist that I respect so much. So thank you so much for that. I spent all my money on whiskey 
Share your opinions on Sound Opinions. Call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.